how do we uh, rightly divide the word of truth, one thing, and then how do we uh, rightly discern the times and the seasons to know what we should do? Because uh, the, the degree of uh, deception, I guess, has probably reached a level never before in the history of the world. Because <clears throat> when something would happen in one part of the world, it would take years for it to travel around the world and to, to thus uh, affect other people around the world. Now it takes a microsecond for things to travel around the world. So error is easily disseminated. And what's worse about it is it is very easily deceived because people don't know history. They don't know the Bible. There's a lot of things they just don't know. So they function in ignorance and then try to gather all their data off of some type of news media or social uh, platform or something like that. And they gather all that and it, it gets twisted around. So we have to go back to the scriptures and find out what says the Lord because that is the standard, the, the Word of God, and He is the standard that inspired the Word of God. So we've got to go back there and <clears throat> understand what is under attack because when people hear that phrase, as it was in the days of Noah, the next thing you got is, well, this is what the ETs are, the aliens that are out there, the Nephilim are back on the earth, and here we go and off we go into the wild blue yonder. Rather than all the, their thoughts were on evil continually. That's the days of Noah because all they were thinking about is that which was evil. It wasn't that the Nephilim were there on the earth, which they were, but it was that they were thinking the wrong thoughts. They were doing the wrong things. Their imaginations were dreaming up new ways to do evil. And so we need to, to go right back to the basics, right back to the blocking and tackling, if you will, right back to figuring out what does God's Word say? And where does it say it? And hopefully when we get some opportunities to be able to talk to people about it, we'll be able to say, well, you can go here and it says this. And this is, it, and it's, it's pretty clear. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at divine institutions. We're going to look at the attacks on the divine institutions in the course of our study. Uh, rather than just go through them and present them and have a big list of them and know what they are, where are they being attacked? So uh, getting an exhaustive list won't happen. Uh, it never does. In, a, in an age like this, how could it be an exhaustive list of all the attacks on a particular divine institution? won't be an exhaustive list, but what we need are the principles. So that as we see something, as we hear something, as we're exposed to something, we're able to evaluate it and evaluate it correctly and then respond in a way that honors the Lord because it's not just pointing out the evil, it's figuring out how to do combat with it because that's what we're called to do. Be Christian warriors, stand firm. Where our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. So we need to know how to combat this, and we need to know when we hear something on the television, uh, <clears throat> what's wrong with it, uh, other than it just doesn't sound right. What we, I think we need a lot clearer understanding. So that's part of what I'm going to try to, try to do uh, during the course of this study. Obviously, it's coming from the Word of God. And if we're studying the Word of God, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So we need to be sure that we're plugged in and connected. We're looking to the Holy Spirit to be our ultimate teacher. He will lead us into all truth. 
and show us things to come. This is part of the all truth. And in the process, we're going to see the things to come that uh, a lot of them are here, but it's just getting warmed up. I think the Bible calls it the beginning of birth pangs. Just getting warmed up real good. So let's take this time, put away all the, the news, <laughs> if you will, for just long enough to feed on, on God's information this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're amazingly blessed. We're blessed to be called your kids. And Father, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world full of testing. We live in a world that, Father, um, uh, it's, it's amazing uh, the different pressures that are coming on us. And really, us compared to the rest of the world is very minor. But uh, to us, it seems very major. Father, we know there's some major problems in this world. We know there are departures from the faith and departures from the truth. And I pray that as we study this portion of your word, that you will indeed enlighten us, challenge us, convict us, show us how we need to respond in an honorable way. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to look at the four divine institutions. The first thing that, that um, you have to do is kind of list them. Then we're going to take each one apart. And, of course, if you do any study online, you're going to find out some people say there are three divine institutions. Other people say there are five divine institutions. So I decided to take one in the middle and just go with four. Now, why? Because these are things that become very evident, self-revealed. And if it's something can be encompassed within one or the other, then we have to realize that. But they're really, they're really pretty simple. First one is volition. Now, <clears throat> volition is the perfect ability to decide, a very simple definition. Now, what it's not is the ability to decide perfectly every time. We don't have that. God has that. He possesses that, and He alone. But He gave His creation the option to be able to uh, make decisions on their own. And with that option, they have the responsibility for the decisions that they made. Now, that becomes apparent all over the scripture in fact you could even figure that out without even going to scripture couldn't you that people should be responsible for decisions they make if they wrong somebody they should be held responsible for it they should be accountable for it you have to go all the way back as far as you can think back to when god said okay i'm gonna i'm going to decree some things all the way back to the very beginning when he decided to bring into existence things that were not there. Because only God can do that. And how did he choose to do that? Now think of an omniscient God. He had a, an infinite number of options. When you start thinking about omniscience, he could have chose to manifest his essence because that's what he chose to do. That's a very simple deduction. He did not need us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existed happily with each other. He did not need us at all. None, none of them did. And so you're going, what did he do? Well, he chose to manifest his essence. Now, how could he have done that? Any number of ways. What did he choose? He chose matter, creatures space and time that's what he chose matter creature space and time 
So <clears throat> he decided he would make matter. Then there's, of course, the opposite of that, which is space. He would make creatures, and he would give this a succession of events, a period of time. God is not bound by time. How does he see the end from the beginning? He is the creator of it. He is not subject to it. So here is God. He chose to make matter, creature, space, and time. And he decided how he was going to do this. Now, how long did this take? Billions of years? I don't think so. God doesn't measure time as we know time. But when he came together and he made some decrees and he formulated a plan, he said, this is what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. So he knew exactly what he was doing when he laid out the end from the beginning. But he decided to give his creation certain creatures, conscious thinking creatures, the ability to decide. Now, humans are different than animals. I know they can pick different dog foods and stuff like that. Lauren Green taught us that, picking dogs picking for Alpo and all that other sort of stuff. But those are responses to whatever, whatever they, it most stimulates them. Those are response mechanisms. But he gave human beings the ability to decide and choose again a against a natural response. He gave angels the ability to decide as well. So it is the perfect ability to decide, but it's not the ability to decide perfectly every time. Now, <clears throat> the good thing to know, jumping far ahead, is one day we'll be able to decide perfectly every time. As I've heard people say, well, <clears throat> in heaven, one of the arguments theologians banter about, will there be volition in eternity? <clears throat> and he the, a lot of them say, no, there's not going to be any volition in eternity. And you're going, um, <laughs> didn't God go to a whole lot of trouble to give us volition? To make decisions and all that? And then suddenly he's going to take it away and we're not, not going to be anything other than robots? But we know we're never going to choose against him. I've heard it said that that's because every, all the environment is so perfect. There is no temptations up there. And I'm thinking... Seemed like Satan had a very similar thing, didn't he? Very similar thing to that perfect environment, no temptations. He had had authority. So here is here that that argument gets gets washed out. So <clears throat> he will be able to give us the ability to decide perfectly every time, just like he does, and he'll do it with our new body. And that's that's a little more in-depth study than I want to go to this morning, but volition, the ability to decide, the ability to choose. Now, I see this as a divine institution. I don't think God overrules volition in his creation. He may overrule an action, but he does not overrule that ability to decide. He has gone to great lengths to preserve it. Because if he starts overruling it, man stops being responsible, as does the angels. So, <clears throat> volition is the first one. <clears throat> the second one is marriage. <coughs> marriage. Uh, you know, this is real simple. It's not politically correct today, but it's between a man and a woman. One of each. Okay? That's how it is designed. Now, some things don't work right. Sometimes they don't work right. God understands that. He made provisions for it. But he designed marriage to be 
between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And that's what he laid out. What did he do? Where did these things come from? Well, we'll we're going to look at each one individually, but it's real easy to go back into the garden and said he looked on this man, and this man he'd created was absolutely perfect, and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. That's the only thing he pronounced not good in the garden, for man to be alone. So what did he do? Took from his side, and he fashioned a woman. And when Adam first saw the woman, he basically went, wow. You didn't read that in your Bible, but it's there in the Hebrew. It basically is an exclamation of, wow, this is really great. <laughs> you know, this is Eve. So Eve had to be a real knockout, and Adam knew it. And so he made the, the two to be able to come together to complement and complete each other. That's the Garden of Eden that we're talking about. Genesis chapter 2, the book of beginnings. Where did it all start? So it's interesting that out of Adam and Eve <coughs> came the human race. In them were the genetics. So here is man and woman. Now what do some of the, the newfound, they're not... They're really not new. They're just new as to whenever they came, became public. They want to destroy marriage. They don't want any marriage. They want to destroy the family. They want to destroy the nation. It's part of Satan's attack on the divine institutions, the thing God set, things God set up. It's part of his attack to destroy and try to replace God. That's what he wants to do. So, it's the uniting of a man and a woman as husband and wife. That is marriage. And the third one is family. Now, this is, um, this is taught all the way in Genesis 1. Why did he put them there? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's why he put them there. Man and a woman to produce offspring. Why? To fill the earth. He wanted, you know, when God decided to share his love, because what did he decide to share? What did he need to share? Hey, I'm going to make a creation that will know how smart I am. Well, that will be true. But what really would this creation want the most? A relationship. God didn't need us. But God chose to make a way whereby we could have an intimate relationship with the living God. Now, <clears throat> after the fall, we had problems we had to deal with. And we could have an intimate relationship with the living God as David, a man after God's own heart, and others. We could have that, but never to the degree we'll have in our new body. In this new body, we're not going to have a sin nature on the inside. The sin nature tends to shield us from a lot of things we shouldn't be shielded from. And it shields us from a lot of good as well. And one of those good things is the Almighty. The <coughs> children... Within the marriage, biological or adopted. I find that interesting as we go, we're adopted kids of God. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Adoption is a good thing. Adoption is a good thing as it shows the, the, the love and care for, for kids that don't have parents. There's a lot of different dynamics that go into that. But biblically, biological children is fine, but sometimes there's, there's no... Uh, biology doesn't work. And so what is the other option? The other option is adoption. Sometimes it's both. 
one of, several of our missionaries back there. Um, one of them, I think if you see his picture, got eight or ten kids around him, and I think half of them are adopted. And he, he understands the principle that goes, goes with that. Uh, it's, um, it is children within the marriage. It becomes the family. And the last one is the nation. <clears throat> now, as you start going through, it's easy to see in early part of Genesis, volition established. We're going to see the verse, let us make man in our own image. Genesis 1. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're going to be able to make decisions like God makes decisions. Let us make man in our own image. That's primarily the focus of what that's about. And then you see what? Marriage. Genesis 2. What do you see starting in chapter 4 of Genesis? Family. You see family starting to happen. What do you see prior to the flood? You see them starting to divide off into larger families and everything. But the, the foundations of the nation, is it not working? What? Hit the off on button again. Let's see if we actually turned it off. It looks good to me. I'm sorry you missed it. I hear it making noise. I got some cute little pictures up on this PowerPoint. <laughs> it did? Okay, well, I got it up here. All right. We're going to go here, slideshow from. Huh? Yeah, all right, maybe it'll come on now. Love technology. This should override that. All right, you guys are going to have to imagine, huh? Okay. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Can you imagine how evil a song that really was? And it was so easy to sing along with back in the 60s. It's actually a religious hymn of atheists. Interesting. The divine institutions, okay, quickly running back through them, volition. The ability to decide. Husband, wife, marriage as well. Then the family and then nations, national entities. And where nations really come into play is Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. Uh, they start to, the underpinnings and the thinking that goes with that starts to happen prior to the flood. But uh, there's a lot of things about the flood, pre-flood that, that uh, are going to be different on the other side. But nations are established. And we know that nations are one of the divine institutions because there are nations even in the millennial kingdom where the Lord is the head of all of them. The nations shall come. A nation is a group of people living within a particular area. It's part of a social group, if you will. 
You find um, uh, nations even in the eternal state. We're going to see it in Revelation 21, 22. Still nations in the eternal state. So you can easily say that that is a divine institution. Now, <clears throat> the four divine institutions. What do we want to look at first? We're going to look at volition. And we're going to look at the Merriam-Webster definition of what volition actually is. First of all, it is the power of choosing or determining. Now, I've heard some people say that man really doesn't even have any volition. In fact, a very noted theologian one time made a comment in one of his systematic theologies, and I'll leave him unnamed, says man just thinks he has volition. Well, I don't think so, <laughs> because God has established it. How do I know he established it? What is the proof? We're going to look at that. What is the proof that God established in his creation, in the thinking, conscious beings, the ability to make decisions? It is the power of choosing or determining. It's an act of making a choice or a decision. And it is a choice of a decision that has already been made. That's the way the term volition is actually used. Now, looking at the very beginning, there are three categories of volition. And he, he established them in a sense, but God didn't establish his own volition. See, God didn't decide to make himself. It, it's hard for us to imagine an eternally existent being. It's hard for us to get our heads wrapped around it. We, cannot, it, we can't go back into a place that there was never time. We cannot grasp uh, a, a being that is omnipotent, that can speak and break, bring an entire heavenly system into existence just by even not speaking but thinking it. He has the power to do that. He has the omniscience <clears throat> to put together designs, designs at work. There are some of the smallest um, little creatures known to man, and they are... They're irreducibly complex. Little bitty living creatures that have three or four parts to them. You take one part away, they don't live anymore. How did they come together? By accident? You see, that's what evolution is going after. Evolution is saying it all happened by chance. Why do I just reject evolution and the sense of Darwinian evolution? Because I don't believe things happen by chance. You have to have a designer where you have a design. We're all wearing clothing in here, thank the Lord. But there was a designer behind that. The designer that laid out the pattern, planned it, cut it all out, sewed it all together, put it all together. There is a designer behind that. And that's what we see when we see a tree outside and we see those leaves. We see a design. We see the same thing in flowers. When we look at the asphalt out there on the, on the driveway coming in. There's a design to that. There's thought that goes behind it. There's a plan that goes behind it. We are looking at the, that, at the result of an ultimate cause. That's what we're looking at. Now, this ultimate cause didn't just happen. I cannot rem remotely bring myself to believe that. But sadly, a lot of kids today are being programmed and taught that evolution is science. And they're taking, they're, they're, they've introduced it as a given. 
This is given what it is, and you have to go from here. The Christian worldview says God is the ultimate cause of all things, and that that's where you have to start. Things come into existence. Now, if you believe the Bible, then you end up with uh, God being the ultimate cause of all things, and you have a book that makes the statement. But people say, well, I don't know that I don't know about choosing for God because today in our culture, that's not scientific, is it? It's not scientific. How many times have you heard in the last three months we're going to follow the science? Well, science is about cause and effect. But just because you find a correlation does not mean you have a causation. And people tend to forget that. They forget those very, the simple basics of, of life. What was that old song? We got to get back to the basics of life. I'm not real sure it was very godly. I don't even remember it other than we must get, some of you do, some don't. We'll get done to sing it at the break. Anyway, first one's divine volition. God has eternally possessed it. When he said, let us make man our own image in Genesis 1, that's a volitional decision, is it not? It's exactly what it is. But how long has he had it? Forever. Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 10, says, remember this. Writing to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, and be assured. Recall to mind, you transgressors. <laughs> you know, God was really not politically correct, right? <laughs> when he spoke through Isaiah, you sinners. Remember the former things long past. What do you want to remember? For I am God. And there is no other. I am God. And there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now, he's going to accomplish it. He's going to accomplish it in a plan that includes not just his volition, but giving a higher and lower creation the ability to choose as well. Now, <clears throat> if you've um, been around people very long, you know that sometimes they don't make the decisions you want them to make. It doesn't <laughs> take a rocket scientist to figure that out. But that there are decisions, and God is able to look. Can you grasp this? He can see the end from the beginning, and tell you what's going to happen. And he's not going to overrule volition in any means. In any way. And again he may stop an action. Kind of like he did Balaam. From pronouncing a curse. Uh, on the Jews. Like he was hired to do. But God used a. Uh, I love it. God used a donkey. A jackass. <laughs> what a conversation. <laughs> There's so many good sermon titles that come out of that. I'm not sure we could put them on the sign out front. But it's one jackass talking to another jackass. That's what it is. And so did he overrule Balaam's volition? No. Did he stop him? Yeah. He opened his mouth. Nothing came out. Yeah. He stopped him. He overruled the action. He did not overrule the volition. He knows and it has, a, has 
the ability to know every good and bad decision throughout the course of human history and still bring his plan to pass. Now, that, that's, to me, that's amazing. We're delving in to the depths of God when we start thinking about his, his, uh, his different attributes, his sovereignty, his righteousness. There's divine volition. God has always had it. Then there's angelic volition. The angels are called a higher creation. Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 makes it very clear that we are lower than the angels. So that tells us that the angels are a higher creation. As we study, and if we study the angelic conflict, we find out that there are some significant differences between angels and men. They're faster, they're stronger, they're smarter. Uh, there's a lot of different things that they go to, we are definitely a lower creation than the angels until we get these new bodies. See, then we're going to be higher than the angels because this body's going to be like Christ. He was made lower than the angels, but he's higher than the angels. So we're going to be just like him. But he granted the ability to decide to his higher creation. Now, how does God make things? Perfectly or imperfectly? Again, simple questions, aren't they? If he's, if he's God and he chooses to reveal himself, will he reveal himself perfectly or imperfectly? It'll be perfectly. But see, we're goofed up already, so we're the ones that get it wrong. But his revelation is perfect. Why do you think that we go with the Bible as being the perfect revelation from God? In the original languages, I'm not talking about some of the copy errors, of which there are very, very few. But when you, when you start looking at God, he'd reveal himself perfectly. Would he not? That's who he is. He does not do imperfection. When he created Adam and Eve, did he create them perfect or imperfect? The old devil would say you made them imperfect, didn't they? Because I faked them out of their shoes. I faked them out of their shoes and into the fig leaves is exactly what I did. He said, I fooled them, but the old devil... That's what he's trying to do. But did the, did the angelic creation have the issue of volition? Well, Ezekiel 28, verse 14 and 15, from verse 10 on in Ezekiel 28, we're no longer talking about the prince of Tyre, which is a human being. We're talking about the king of Tyre. Now, it's a difference here, and you have to pick up the difference. One part of hermeneutics is you find the similarities and you find the differences. In verse 10, it moves to the king of Tyre. This is the one behind the throne of the prince. The prince is the human that lived out on this little island off out in the Mediterranean. And he, he, they were very wealthy, extremely wealthy. And they had an anti-Semitic thought, a thought against Israel, saying, I hope these bad guys get hold of Israel because then we can take all their sea trade. And God said, God said yeah, I knew that. And so he takes out Tyre over the course of time. But that's the prince of Tyre. The king of Tyre is the one behind the anti-Semitic thought. That's the old devil himself. How do we know? Because he says, you are the anointed cherub that covers. Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen. You are the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were in Eden, the garden of God, he says. Interesting. That moves from being a human being to being an angelic being. 
because there wasn't but two humans in the Garden of Eden. You were, you were in Eden, the Garden of God. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways. Now, this is what you would expect from a holy God who would make his creation perfect to begin with. Satan was not created imperfect. Satan was not created a sinner. Satan was created perfect just like God does things. He says, and, and uh, he says, you were blameless in your ways from the day that you were barad, created out of nothing. That tells us a lot of stuff. Until unrighteousness was found in you. How did it get there? Well, we know from Isaiah 14, there was, there was pride. The five I wills. I will be like the most high. He decided that he was going to go after God's throne. It's exactly what he decided to go after. Now, did God make him do that? If the creature had volition, the creature was responsible for his decisions. Okay? God didn't make him do that. Did he know he was going to do that? God knew it. He can't not know something. But it was altogether for the good of this plan that would produce for himself a people for his own possession, one who could honestly love him back. He could have made robots programmed to say, I love you. I've used that multiple times. Put a screensaver on your computer and it'll say, I love you. And it'll go flitting by at whatever speed you want. And it'll say, I love you. And you know that computer doesn't love you. My computer hates me <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> and I have a little office in the backyard that occasionally my voice shakes the dog up in the backyard <laughs> coming, out of the, coming out of the office. And I'm discussing things with a computer that is not working accordingly as it should. But see, I can put the screensaver on my wife's computer and she knows that there was somebody behind that. See? So it was real. But the computer could care less about me. So God didn't make computers. God made creatures who could love Him back with the same intensity as He loves them. But it had to have, in this master plan, the ability to decide. Or it wouldn't have meant anything. So <clears throat> there was this higher creation, and then human creation. God granted volition to the lower creation of man. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, 26, 27, God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them, mankind, human beings, rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. When he made human beings, he made them to be the rulers. And God created man in his own image. And you start thinking about that and exploring that. And what does it mean to be made in the image of God? See, we are image bearers. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. It's the... We, are, we bear the image of God in what way? In what way? Because we can make decisions. And we're responsible for those decisions. 
Now, does God have hands and feet? The Lord does, a perfect representation of His being, but it did not have a specific reference in there to form. It is more toward what is in the soul. What did He put in the soul? Because God is the ultimate soul. And when He gave this human being a soul, inside that soul is the ability to decide. has to be. It's interesting that the... the uh, one of the things that neurologists, brain surgeons haven't been able to do is figure out how to make somebody decide. It is still rock, locked in to that part of man that is, it is the immaterial part of what makes someone a human. They've made, they can make people move their feet while they're doing surgery or move their hand and the person will respond, that wasn't me. You did that. They can actually, but they can't make them decide. Now, this is an amazing, to me, it's an amazing thing. Because God knew about all this science and technology and all this stuff that we would figure out over the course of time. So we would, too, become inventors of evil, as it was in the days of Noah. He knew just what it would be like. And he said, I'm going to give you an ability to decide, and I'm going to make you responsible for it. Now... Some biblical evidence for volition. If you start working for the word volition in the Bible, guess what? It's not there. Just like the word trinity is not there. So when you don't have a word to go with, you have to have something that is very well understood and defined and talked about. The, um, now, where is it found? First of all, every third class condition. Now, third-class condition in the Greek is one of the things that Greek students learn in first-year Greek, and it is the little uh, preposition aon, E-A-N, plus a subjunctive mood. Now, I know that is Greek to some of you, and that's fine, but it is aon plus a subjunctive that is found there. The Greek has four different ifs. It's an if clause. They have four different ifs. A first-class condition, which is done differently, it uses... E-A, e -A, instead of E-A-N on it. And it introduces often with an indicative, if it's true, and it is. Then you have a second class condition. said, if it's true, but it's not. Then you have a third class condition, which if it's true, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And the fourth class condition says, if it's true, and I wish it were. <laughs> it's very wishful thinking. So here's this third class condition. says, if it's true, maybe it is, maybe it's not. And you find uh, examples of this. I'll give you an example. John chapter uh, 15, verse 10, verse 14. This is a very common construction, by the way. It's not a unique construction. It's not found in just one or two verses and people turning it into major doctrines. It's found all over the New Testament because it is a Greek construction. That is there. But he says, if, if you keep my commandments, third class condition. He's talking to his disciples, night for the cross, in the upper room. If, maybe you will, maybe you won't. You keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If the answer is yes, if you do, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15, 14. You are my friends, he says. If you do what I command you. 
It's a third-class condition. Maybe you will, and maybe you won't. So he's setting conditions there for friendship. He's setting conditions to be able to experience the love of God. See, the love of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. He loves all of us. He loved all of his creation. <laughs> that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So here is these the... Uh, commandments that are there he loves everyone enough to send his son to die and pay for the sins of everyone a propitiation for our sins not for ours only those of the whole world he has sent his son to pay that price <clears throat> they're knowing that not everyone would accept those not everyone would appropriate those if you do this he loves us with a great love but do we want to share that love do we want to experience that love? It's a choice. And he says, how are you going to do it? My commandments. What, what list of commandments did he give the night before the cross? Uh, it, it connects us to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he said, if you love one another, all men will know you're my, my disciples if you have this love for one another in John 13. What commandment did he give them that night? A new commandment I give to you. It wasn't new in respect to time. It was new in respect to quality. Because now they were going to see the greatest love that would ever be displayed in all of history. His substitutionary death for them on a cross. So <clears throat> this third class condition in the Greek. A subjunctive mood in the Greek as well, which is, is usually translated may or might. A pure future is will. This will happen, will happen. But when you have something that involves a possibility in your life, then it's a subjunctive mood that is there, and it requires a choice. The next thing is every alternative choice presented. How about John 3.36? He who believes in the Son has eternal life. I love that verse. He who believes in the Son, is belief a matter of choice? Certainly the way it's presented, isn't it? Even to unbelievers, even those who are born spiritually dead have the ability to believe or it would not be a viable opportunity. Huh. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. They possess it. He does not obey the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's the alternate choice that is presented. And then we find the last one are imperatives to action or prohibition. Revelation 22, 7 says, Behold. I, I, this little word, behold, is a command. <laughs> you're either going to pay attention or you're not. And the Bible likes to put behold in there, doesn't it? It puts, plugs behold in and says pay attention. Harao is the word that is used, that is, that is used so many times it's put into a little word, he do. And then the next thing you know, it's pay attention. That's what he's saying. Just like teachers do with students occasionally. They say pay attention. Okay? Behold. Okay? Pay attention. <laughs> you got, I am coming quickly. Lord talking. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Pay attention to that. 
22.12, Behold, once again, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Powerful verses, the end of the book of Revelation. Now what we do know is volition is going to be tested. It is going to be tested. It is part of this amazing plan and design of God. Part of this amazing plan to, to have, uh, to see what he's going to do. I mean, he's going to test our volition. Will we believe him? Will we obey him? What will we do? Choice is yours. And that's, that's where he leaves it. Now we're going to start next week with volition and the will of God. Because how does this all play into the will of God? How could God give us the perfect ability to choose and still have this amazing plan that he will bring to fruition? And how does he bring this plan to fruition when we look and see his will? And that's what we're going to look at in uh, more depth um, next week because I talked too much this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you. Thank you for your blessings, your tests. Thank you for your opportunities. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. And Father, we, we do give you the praise. We are amazed at it. We thank you that we can, um, can understand what you would have us do in this life to please you. May we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.